Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Monday, September the 12th, 2011, and this is episode 742 of the Survival Podcast. I have a great show to, for you guys today. It's Monday, so you know it's going to be a listener feedback show. May do another one of those uh, on Wednesday. Tomorrow I have a great interview with a guest about hardened shelters, NBC-style shelters. And I uh, have a great week planned out for you. I'm going to tell you right now, though, and I'll, I'll mention it every day so nobody goes into shock or withdrawals or whatever. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week, there will not be episodes of the Survival Podcast. I will invite you to look back. Uh, somewhere into the 745-odd episodes. If you're looking for a show that day, there's probably something we've covered in the past that you could use a refresher on. I am, of course, going to the Denver Self-Reliance Expo, uh, which will be Friday and Saturday. And then um, Sunday morning, my wife and I are driving up to Estes Park, since we're already in Colorado. And we've been trying to get back to that place for a long time. Actually, I've been trying to get back. It's the first time for my wife, actually, to ever go to Estes. It's been a dream of hers, and I've just decided with all of the stuff we've got to do to be ready to get out of here on Thursday morning and making two extra shows this week for that alone, um, that if I'm going to do a good job at the Expo, if everything's going to be in order, all our stuff's going to be there, all our stuff's going to get set up, I don't have time to cram another three extra episodes and do five extra episodes in three days this week, so... I'm just going to take a break, and I'm actually going to go take a vacation. And unlike most of my vacations, this one's going to be a full-out, uh, flat-out uh, vacation with uh, with the show actually shut down for three days. But on Thursday next week, I will be back, and we will be full boat all this week. Before we get into your feedback, and remember, you can send me feedback by writing me at jack at com. There's no special insider email address. That's the one that all my stuff needs to come to, jack at com. It will come in. I will read it. I can't respond to them all. But if you're submitting content for a show like this, please put something in the subject line that indicates that, like, Video for Jack, article for Jack, question for Jack, or commentary for Jack. That'll help with my sorting and try to get you on the air. No exaggeration, somewhere between two and 400 emails a day like that, so I don't get them all on the air. But when I get 10 about one thing, generally it gets on the air. So let your voice be heard. And uh, I also have a lot of good listener feedback today on things that have happened to people with Hurricane Irene and some other things lately. I'm interested in your actual survivor stories uh, where your preps paid off or where you found holes in your preps. We'll share both of those kind today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie down there somewhere south of Austin. And uh, if you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, I don't care if you have a tenth of an acre, 10 acres, or 10,000 acres, the systems that are described in her video 
backyard uh, food production uh, food production systems for a backyard or a small farm will show you how to do just that. I've also had a lot of people asking about Marjorie lately with the Texas wildfires. The last report I had from her, uh, they had fires surrounding the area but not yet encroaching on their area, and for now they were safe, but they were ready to leave at a moment's notice if they had to. Um, so thank you for those of you that have been concerned about her, and they are ready to go, and they are running a neighborhood watch for fires sparking up in their area, because even though the fires that are burning aren't spread in there yet, uh, it's a condition where it takes one spark to set it off, so they're even uh, organized their community to uh, to check, th- to be ready if uh, something sparks up in their area. Uh, but they're a great sponsor, and uh Sure, she could use a little bit of extra business, folks, so uh, consider getting that DVD and making a part of your knowledge library. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Boy, talk about knowledge. Firearms are one thing, but the knowledge of how to use them and the training of how to use them so that when you're in a stressful situation, you're able to do that, that's really important. And that's what Fortress Defense Consultants can help you with. Um, you really need training. I get questions all the time. What, what should my next gun be? What should my next gun be? Um, your next gun should probably be firearms defense training if you haven't had a course in the last year or two. And you should probably take one every year or two. And I can't think of a better place to go than Fortress Defense Consultants. He is, of course, up there in Illinois. That's Frank Sharp Jr. But if you put together a group, let's say half a dozen or more, and uh, have a local range where training can be done, uh, Frank will make arrangements and come down and do the training for you. So why don't you talk to guys at work? If you're in a gun club or, you know, a rod and gun club, like they have a lot of those in the Northeast or something like that, and see if anybody's interested in getting together. Get in touch with Frank. And the cool thing about Frank is he has all these kind of cookie cutter, here's the courses I, I do. And, but you can fit those together in a multi-day course. You can tell them exactly what you're looking for, and they'll come bring you the exact type of training that you're looking for. So consider those guys. Remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, the forum in the gear shop. Lots of cool stuff at the gear shop, folks. Check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you get discounts from 29 different vendors. I'm telling you, if you spend money in on preparedness items, anything from seeds for your garden to long-term storage food to silver uh, to e-books and books for knowledge and things like that and DVDs, I don't care what it is. If you are spending any money at all in this this niche, then if you join the Member Support Brigade over a one-year period, the discounts alone will pay for your membership. So do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Remember, law enforcement, military, uh, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, you can just email me at jack at com. Let me know the details about your service, kind of your job, the years you served. That's the basics. That's all I really need. And uh, if you do that, I will send you a special discount code. We call it a national service discount to thank you for your service. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to lead off with something no one sent me yet. I'm sure everybody out there today, though, is paying attention to it, and that is the nuclear accident in France. While I'm sure there will be conspiracy theories abuzzing about this one, maybe not to the level of uh, Fukushima, uh, here is the latest report off of Fox Business, Paris Uh, French Energy Minister Eric Besson has given assurance by the state-controlled power giant Electrolyte de France SA uh, that the explosion late Monday at its nuclear waste plant near Maracol in south- southern France, if I pronounced that city wrong, I'm sorry, I don't speak French, had no radioactive or chemical leaks, leaks, its office said. The explosion killed one person and injured four others, EDF said earlier. The minister had been moved by the, this accident and its human consequences. A spokesman for the minister said, 
Uh, Bresson also, quote, received assurances from the operator, EDF, that this accident didn't trigger any radioactive nor chemical leaks, end quote, she said. In a separate statement, Environmental Minister Natalie Kouisko-Moinset said she was traveling to the location to assess the situation. Uh, on the surface right now, it looks like this is a very, very minor disaster, and it doesn't look like there's anything that's gotten out into the atmosphere. Now, they always say that, and something could have happened, but it looks to me like this is a, a minor industrial accident that took place at a nuclear facility, and it looks like it'll be something they'll be able to, to, to wrap up rather quickly. We'll stay in touch with it. If you hear more, let me know. Um, but if Alex Jones starts ranting and raving and telling you to buy pot potassium iodide today and he has the last stockpiles of it or some other stupid nonsense, please don't buy into the hysteria over this. Jack told you, Jack told you the truth about Fukushima, that it was going to probably screw the general area, but pretty much everything else would put itself back together pretty quickly, and that is what's happening. Now, there may be some areas right around Fukushima where people can't live anymore. It's a big loss for the Japanese, but the giant nuclear cloud of death that was supposed to kill everybody in America, and if you didn't go buy Alex Jones's freaking potassium iodide, you were going to die, never happened, and it's not coming. But th that said, this is another wake-up call. Uh, most of us in the United States don't live very far away from at least one nuclear facility, and it's something we do need to be prepared for. Um, and potassium iodide is one short-term way to at least protect against thyroid cancer. And it is something that should be part of your preps. But if it goes up three or four times its price tomorrow morning, I would advise you to sit and wait for a couple of days and buy it at a normal price and then put it into your preps. But do have a plan for nuclear uh, accidents. And I bring this up very timely because tomorrow uh, we're going to have an interview with a gentleman from Utah uh, Shelters who builds uh, you know, blast shelters for NBC Environments. And uh, it may be something to consider. It's not something that's chump change. Uh, but it is something we may need to think about, uh, providing some protection against things like this. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take your first email that came to me for uh, feedback. Um, this comes from uh, a, a fellow, a gentleman named Rich. Sorry about the little hiccup there. My wife just came into the studio, and I got distracted by my lovely wife, as I always do when she enters the room. Anyway, um, this is an article on Transparency Revolution. It's referencing a story that I've also received from a lot of people on CNN about our jobs becoming obsolete. Um, let me read a little bit of this to you. CNN asks a question we can expect to hear more and more in the coming years. Are jobs obsolete? The linked article makes a strong case, one that I've explored both here uh, at the special, Speculist and uh, which featured in one of our recent World Transform podcasts. Here's a summary. I'm afraid to even ask this, but since when is unemployment really a problem? I understand we all want paychecks or at least money. We want food, shelter, clothing, and all things that money buys us, but do we really want jobs? We're living in an economy where productivity is no longer the goal. Employment is. That's because on a very fundamental level, we have pretty much everything we need. America is productive enough that it could probably shelter, feed, educate, and even provide health care for its entire population with just a fraction of us actually working. And that ends the excerpt. Uh, and I'm going back to the, the, the blogger's article here. We could, uh, we could, but how are you going to distribute all that which is produced by the few remaining workers in many machines? Uh, do the majority of the population become welfare recipients? Does everybody get the same amount? 
do the remaining workers get more, seeing as they still have to work? These are tough questions, and if jobs truly are becoming obsolete, we will have to face them. But it's not clear to me that jobs are becoming obsolete, at least not anytime soon. Douglas Russoff, the guy who wrote the linked article, apparently still has a job. I actually performing my job writing this blog post, and of course many of you reading this are doing so at work. Whether that activity is work-related, you'll have to figure it out for yourselves, of course. We established last week that there are some jobs that are not yet ready for automation and that there is a growing demand in some unexpected areas, such as speech pathology. But right now it feels as though we're losing old jobs faster than we're gaining new ones. Why? Automation is eliminating jobs. Machines are doing it. They are fast, efficient, and relentless. Creating jobs is a whole different matter. Creating jobs requires developing new business models, which means identifying market needs. Figuring out what is important to people and what they will pay for it is fundamentally creative activity, one that machines can't perform. And you can read the rest of the article if you want. I think this guy's pretty well switched on. Um, my take on this is completely different than the, than the author at CNN uh, because I think it's socialist drivel. The, okay, well, we just could have like 10% of the population working and 90% living off their backs. That's bullshit. Uh, and it won't work and it can't work. And we can't do what he says we can do right now. Uh, so how are we going to do it if uh, we reduce the tax base and the income base even further? Uh, how hard do I have to work so that you can sit on your ass and do nothing? Um, then there's a little bit of a rebuttal here on the, uh, on the blog. And again, this blog is called Transparency Revolution. Uh, about how that won't work. So I agree with that take on it. But it doesn't mean to me that the job's not becoming obsolete. He says, I'm writing this article, and when I'm writing this article, I'm doing my job. Uh, I don't really see it that way. I, I don't see blogging as a job. I see it as a business that you own. Unless somebody else owns the material and owns the blog and owns the content, you write for them and they pay you with a paycheck, that's a job. Right when when you go to work and someone else collects the money and determines how much of it you get, that is a job. That is the very definition of a job. I don't view survival podcast as my job. I view it as my business. And when I look at it that way, is the job becoming obsolete? I think to a large degree that it is. And this ties in nicely with a debate we've been having on the survival podcast blog. In the show notes where I talked about unschooling, and a little little note for everybody here. If you're going to jump into the middle of a comments thread about an episode you haven't listened to yet, you may not get the response you were looking for. Because what I've dealt with in that thread is a hell of a lot of people telling me, but Jack, the sky's not purple, it's blue. And I'm like, yeah, the sky's blue, but I never said it was purple. With people having no understanding whatsoever what unschooling is and objecting to things without having any context in which they're objecting. That's all aside, though. Uh, the commenter in this particular debate basically said that if a kid is out learning survival skills, like wilderness survival skills, there's no future for them. There's no job for them. There's no, there's no way that they're going to make themselves successful. I think you're completely full of shit if you believe that. I think that right now... At this time in history, there is no subject, no niche, no anything. If you can dream of it or think of it or if it gets thought of tomorrow and you really go out and do the best job of it that you can, I believe that anybody can build a business in any niche, any subject, anything right now because it's wild, wild west on the internet. That's what, that's, that's what I think WWW really stands for, the wild, wild west because there's no rules. You can break every freaking rule and still succeed as long as you follow the fundamental rules of business. And I think that is making more and more jobs obsolete. 
when I was running a marketing firm providing SEO services, search engine optimization services, I had a very difficult time actually growing the business, not because I couldn't find clients, because I couldn't find talent to work in my company for me. Do you know why? If you know what you're doing with SEO, you pick any subject you like, you go do it for yourself, and in about a year to a year and a half, you're making more money for yourself than you can make working a job for somebody who's, who's charting out your skills. So what happens in that industry is you hire someone who knows a little bit, you train them very well, they build their own projects, which I would never discourage because they're, they're not going to learn enough just working on client site. But eventually, as soon as they, as soon as they're making about a grand a month, right? 24,000 a year, that's not a lot to live on. But as soon as they're making that much, they just go, I don't, I don't really need you anymore. And they just ramp it up for a month or two and then they walk away. So if people can do that in that industry, that means people can do that in any industry. Because the guy that does it, that you hired as an SEO specialist or a web marketing specialist to work for you and leaves you, he never usually goes out and competes directly with you. He's seen the inside of the industry. He doesn't want to go out and try to find people. Some people go take private clients and stuff like that. Basically, whatever they do is whatever they're into, they build a business around it. And anybody could do that today. And I think that is doing more to tear down the traditional concept of jobs. And I welcome it. And I don't welcome it just because I'm involved with it. I welcome it because I see it as what America was like before we screwed it up. If you go back, you know what the biggest thing, and no one talks about it this way, but the biggest thing that damaged the entrepreneurial spirit in America, one, one of the biggest things was prohibition. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of little microbreweries and little brew pubs and things like that. And that thriving industry uh, really kind of tied into all different industries. The more you take an industry and break it up into little pockets, the more other little industries it spawns, right? And the more local development it, it, it creates and the more independence and freedom it creates. When you push them together, right, then you see it start to become a conglomeration and you see people that would be working for themselves working for a little bit more than minimum wage. Prohibition did that. It consolidated the brewing industry. After Prohibition, with the backs broke of the small breweries, very few of them came back. In fact, only one really came back, and it was Yingling. And the only reason I know that, that story is because I'm from Pottsville, where Yingling's from. And they made uh, ice cream and provided malt during Prohibition. So that's how they survived. Um, survived since 1829, by the way. But we've seen this with the Walmart phenomenon. How many people that work for Walmart today, um, and maybe not so much anymore, but in the beginning, a lot of the mom pops ended up having to go work for Walmart or go work for Home Depot uh, after their business was destroyed as that conglomeration spread across America. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying that we're now seeing, because of the freedom created by the Internet, a decoupling of this model. And as people sit around and they go 50 weeks or more without being employed, some of them become dependent upon the system for unemployment and just say, I'll just take it until I find a job. But a lot more of them are starting to say, well, what can I do with all this time that I have since no one wants to hire me? And unfortunately for a lot of people in their 40s and 50s, uh, you get to a point where it's very hard to learn this new stuff uh, because you just have a mental block. To the fact that it's even possible. Uh, most people today in their 40s and 50s are living with a 1980s mentality. It's 2011. Wake the hell up.
Learn new skills, market yourself, and do what you love. That's what I think. That's what I think of this job selections. Anyway, I'll provide a link to the article, and I think you'll enjoy it if you read it all. This one I'm not going to say much about. Uh, it'll probably make your eyes want to bleed when I tell you what it is. It comes to us from a lot of people, uh, but this one comes from David. It's an article in buffalonews.com, and it says, Gun buyback for kids. It's about toys and pizza. The different, this was a different kind of gun buyback program. The guns being brought back from the streets weren't 9mm handguns or Glocks. Instead, they were Nerf guns and toy pistols. They weren't being bought with catch. This time, the currency was pizza slices, notebooks, and dress shirts. The Fathers Group and Bona Pizza teamed up Monday for a buyback aimed at young teens and preteens at the pizzeria at Bellington and Kingston Avenues. The idea was simple. Don't let kids get used to firing weapons, even if they're toys. Quote, it makes them too comfortable holding a gun, end quote, said Leonard Lane, president of Fathers Armed Together to Help Educate, Restore, and Save. Idiots. That's what it should be called. Uh, quote, there is no fear holding a real gun when they get older. We want to put fear back into our children, teaching them what guns can do and how they affect their community, end quote. You want to put fear back into your children? You are a moron. If you want to read the rest of this article, you can. This is a perfect example of stupidity. Let me give you the one glowing light of all this that they don't talk about here that I know happened. Kids went, I can get free pizza for a toy gun, and they have all their toy guns, and they find the ones they don't play with anymore, and the broken ones are crap like that, and they go in and get some pizza, and I guarantee you the kids that are turning them in are still out there. But the mentality here is idiotic. We should be teaching our kids not to fear gun, our kids not to fear guns, to respect and understand them and become responsible armed citizens, not taking away their toy guns. And people that do this are just idiots. Little boys are going to play guns. That's what they do. And some little girls too, but definitely little boys. If you don't give them toy guns, they will carve one out of a stick. They're, they will use their finger. It was a great activity. When I was a kid, we loved the, we called it playing guns. And we went around with our toy guns and we'd break up into teams and we didn't have airsoft back then or, or uh, what do you call it, uh, paintball or anything. So basically it was whoever you got to drop on, got to drop on first and you'd, you'd stand up and go bang, you're dead. And then the guy'd have to count to like 20. Uh, and remain in place, and then he could move on. Uh, you know what? You want to take that away from kids? You're a freaking moron. You're absolutely a freaking moron. Um, I say we start teaching our children to use weapons effectively and understand and respect them and become responsible citizens. Love to hear what you think on that one. Next one, this is a question for Jack, comes from Sandy. Hi, Jack. I want to add uh, one more question to the two I already sent you below. Sorry, hold on. Uh, I got that one out of place. Let me read her first question here for you. Hi, Jack. Is a recovering tinfoil hat wearer. I want to thank you for being a voice of reason in a sea of misinformation and disinformation. Your show has provided so many great links and resources for my husband and I. In fact, your show has inspired us to get proactive about creating a better, more sustainable life. My husband and I have been seriously considering leaving our 9-to-5 job and hitting the road RV style. We simply cannot stand being a part of corporate fashion media monster in Hollywood. By the time we depart, tax day uh, is when they're going to leave. That's great. We'll have about $30,000 uh, with about five k set aside to purchasing the right vehicle. We're in our mid-30s with no children or obligations to live a more real life. Uh, we believe that we can live in an RV for about a year, assuming my husband takes on some handyman work along the way, or we volunteer at various eco-villages. We have no problem going to remote areas and living on a tight budget. We want to use the trip to help us learn new skills and find a new location we can call home, settle down, and create a homestead. Like most things, this sounds great as an idea, 
But like most things, there are probably a lot of things we're not considering along the way that may be inconvenient and costly. What advice would you give us in considering this major lifestyle change? And what advice do you have about finding the right type of vehicle, i.e. maybe a van conversion would be convenient and less expensive? Thanks for all your hard work. Ass clown. Just kidding. <laughs> Sandy from L.A. Sandy from L.A. Let me tell you what I think about this. One, um, I think you can easily go for a year on 30K. I don't know that if you only have 5K to buy a vehicle that that's going to fly. Uh, and I think you need to start looking around and seeing what's going on. Assuming you have a couple vehicles right now, trading them in on a good truck and finding a towable RV for around 5K might work. And I think you're looking more, if you're going to live in this thing for a year, you want some size and all, I think you're looking somewhere between 5 and 10K. So it may be that you have to really work a lot harder in the next couple months to put away more money to fund that, or that you're not going to have a, a 30K operating budget, you're only going to have a 25K operating budget. I think you can still make that work. But I also think you're going to need to think about this. What are you going to eat while you're out there? You know, what are you going to live on when you're not somewhere where you can, uh, you can partake of things like an eco village? I'm going to talk about another opportunity for you, by the way, in just a second. Um, but where can you, you know, what are you going to eat? And you might want to start eating that now just to get an understanding of what it's going to be like. Uh, if you're going to say we're going to live on rice, beans, and pasta, and we're going to put a bunch of that away, and uh, that's going to be our staple, fine. Do it for a month right now. Do it for a month right now. And when you do, every penny you save because you're making that change today, put it towards your, your escape fund. All right, so that is is one thought. I want to read her other question, the follow-up questions before I go on with it. I want to add two more one more question to the two I already sent you. After telling a few friends about our plan, we heard several times that our timing was bad because the job market and we were crazy to be leaving secure employment. Also, having listened to you for a while, I'm aware that things are not going to get any better financially for any country anytime soon. So do you think this is a bad time for us to just up and go? Are we stupid to leave secure yet utterly boring, stable jobs behind in search of a better life right now? FYI, my husband works as a set builder for television, has all the skills of a basic carpenter and handyman. He's also a very good video editor. I taught high school chemistry for a few years but now work as a pattern maker in the apparel industry. Thanks again. We will eagerly be awaiting your reply. Um, let me tell you something about friends. Whenever you tell friends you're going to make a departure from what they see as normal, they always give you some bullshit reason you can't do it. Oh, the economy's so bad right now. Let me tell you something. If the economy was booming right now, if the economy was freaking taking off like a rocket, if you guys were getting promoted and advancing and you guys were able to leave with 100K versus 30K, they would tell you the same shit in a different message. Oh, you guys are up and coming and you're going to be millionaires and why just don't listen to people about your freaking dreams when they're pissing on them because they're scared to leave. They're scared to do what you're willing to do and they, misery loves company. It's not that they don't like you. And, and here's the reality. If you were going to open a restaurant, hey, you know, we're going to open a restaurant and you had a perfect business plan. You had funding, you had money, you had a chef, you had everything lined up. You hadn't done it yet. Oh, it's not a good time. If you told them, oh, we already opened a restaurant. You want to come down and see it? They would be completely supportive. This is what you're going to deal with with people. So just be ready for it. Um, so I'll tell you this. There is no good time in anybody's opinion to do anything radical. It's either too good or too bad. And for people to say, well, it's so rough out there right now, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. They live in a little myopic island in, in, in Hollywood. They don't know what it's like in the middle of Montana or wherever else you might go. 
on that note, I think a really great thing you can use as a resource for this is called Woof. Alright, I guess that's what you'd, how you'd say it. W-W-O-O-F. Woof. Worldwide opportunities on organic farms, and they have them by region all over here in North America. Uh, and if you go to www.oofusa.org, uh, that is the one for the domestic United States. And you can find farms in any state in, in, uh, in, in North America that will want to trade basically with you. They'll give you a place to stay. They'll, some of them will give you food. Some of them will give you some of your food. They'll want you to work pretty hard while you're there. Uh, but you'll learn farming. And you can go from one to the next. And I think if you had an RV, most of them would be pretty happy to let you stay in your RV and maybe let you kind of have the space that a normal uh, woofer would have anyway and kind of double your space and things like that. It's a great way to meet people, experience different communities. Some of the commitments are pretty mild. They, you know, there's people that are looking for someone to work, you know, three or four hours a day. Some of the people are looking for people that are going to work sun up to sundown. And please remember with things like this, everything's negotiable. Well, I don't want your, your bed space and all. We want a place to park our RV, um, and we want to be able to tie in electricity, and I want to work four hours a day, and I'm a volunteer, and if that's not good enough, we'll find somebody else. You might find a person that says, yeah, you know, what if you worked all day, three days a week? You know, I'll tell you what, I think there's a great opportunity with this, uh, this worldwide opportunities on organic farms. I think it's, uh, really a cool thing. So that's another way that you can do this. There is going to be, unforeseen expenses and unforeseen costs. And the, and the thing is, if you get out there and a vehicle breaks down, it could be a very expensive repair job. I'm really going to urge you to think about trading in your passenger vehicles, whatever they are, finding a truck suitable for towing, so you're looking at a three-quarter ton or above uh, in decent shape, and, and maybe making that exchange, if that's in the, in the cards for you, and thinking about a towable RV. Towable RVs have a lot less that can go wrong with them and a lot less expense to getting them at least mobile again. And wherever you are, anywhere in the world, as long as there's any kind of civilization around, there's a repair shop that knows what to do with a truck. And there's often not a repair shop that knows what to do with an RV. Um, I would also say have AAA. And, uh, and, and motor coach coverage, uh, they usually have to get that from somebody else. AAA, I don't think, does RV coverage. Um, we have some, I can't remember who it was. It was whatever came with it. Uh, while you're out there, it will pay for itself the first time you break down. So budget that in. But if this is what you want to do, instead of telling you all the reasons you can't, I'm going to tell you what, there's no better time than now. You'll never be younger. You'll never be more free. You'll never have the vision clearer than you do right now. You may need to pump up the operation budget another 5 or 10K. If you really want to live this way, start living this way now, except for the fact that you're here, and uh, make a little extra money go away. That, that would be my best thing. Put a little bit more than you think you'll need. And I do think there's plenty of opportunity out there for people that are willing to work. And uh, handyman skills and stuff like that, that'll come in real, real handy. Um, and I'll bet you a lot of these uh, uh, WWOF farms, these wolf farms, if you find a farm in the right area, even though you're doing your work volunteer for them, you'll probably be able to pick up some work, especially the construction type work, with other farms around them for pay while you're there. There's a lot of opportunity out there for people that are willing to go out and find it. Don't let anybody crap on your dream. Get out there and live it. Um, next one, uh, this says, uh, threatened with police state type action. Um, it comes from Larry. It says, I live in a small town in South Texas of Ingleside. On September 7th, we had a brush fire by my house. 
they had the roads blocked off and were not letting anyone go that way. I told a police officer directing traffic, I lived in the affected area. I needed to go home and retrieve my dogs. The officer didn't want to let me go, but when I asked if there if this there was a mandatory evacuation order for the area, I was told no. So I told them, staying calm, that I was going to my house, basically implying the officer couldn't stop me. She said to go ahead and go, go get my dog, and then please leave the area. There was another person directing traffic in plain clothes with the officer who decided to mouth off by telling me as if I have any as if having any kind of authority over me. You have two minutes to get your stuff and get out. If you don't, we have people with guns that will make you leave. I got really upset by this comment, was about to get out of my car and confront this individual, but realized that I was wearing my church youth ministry t-shirt. I'm a local minister and didn't feel like it was appropriate to get out and confront the individual with the shirt on his. It was a WWJD shirt. This man made this, this man made this remark very loudly so everyone in the intersection could hear. The police officer standing next to us did absolutely nothing to reprimand the individual for the remark. I feel the officer was in agreement with this in a way. Well, I kept my composure shaking with anger now. I drove past them and went home. I went into the house and changed into a plain t-shirt. Proceeded to wait in my front yard, walking, talking with my neighbors who also refused to leave. Waiting for the moron on the corner to try to remove me from my home. He never showed up. Lucky for him, my house was protected by two Rhodesian Ridgebacks, Stag Harbor, Springfield Armory, and Mossberg Security Systems. Thanks for the show and keep up the good work. Larry, I agree with you on a level. I, I want to explain something though. The guy in plain clothes, for all you know, is a volunteer firefighter or an actual firefighter or a cop that's off duty. Uh, not that they have any right to threaten you. I completely agree with that. That's nonsense. I want to explain to you though sometimes why these people do threaten. Because they know that if you don't leave and you get stuck and somebody has to go in there and get your ass out after you could have left, that it's probably going to be them or somebody they work with and care about. And that's why these guys get this way. Trust me, FEMA's not looking to move you off your farm during a fire so they can go in there and squat on it. That's not what it's about. I don't agree with the tact, and I think you did the right thing, and hopefully it was more than just the t-shirt that told you to do the right thing. There's no reason to argue with somebody once they've already told you you can do what you want to do. There's no reason to build up a confrontation in a situation uh, where you know things can get out of hand when you have the freedom to leave. And I think a lot of people would not spend nights in jail if they learned to shut up and leave when they had the opportunity to. So... Uh, not that I'm supporting anything that this, this idiot said, because they do think he's a freaking dumbass. But this refusal to leave during an evacuation order. If you completely assess the situation and you've made a decision for yourself that you want to stay, I'm okay with that. I believe in freedom. Uh, it's part of my libertarian principles. But I really encourage you to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, not just because you think you should be able to and you're trying to prove a point. Proving a point while your house burns down with you inside it doesn't really prove anybody wrong except the person that burns down with their house. I'm happy to hear your house didn't burn down and the evacuation order wasn't actually necessary for you. But please, I'm just saying, not even to you directly, Larry, but to everybody out there, if you're ever told to evacuate, and your instinct is not to evacuate, please examine the situation fully. Do not see a conflict with authority as a reason not to do something that's in your best interest. Because I'm going to tell you what. Many of the people that when you say, okay, look, you got to go get out of here. And they go, I'm not going. You're not getting me off my land. <laughs> It'll be a cold day in hell before I leave. If those same people came in there and said, there's a danger in the area, you stay here, do not evacuate, I'm going to go wherever the hell I want to. And that is dumb. That is dumb. That is letting somebody else 
make your decision for you based on your simple uh, knee-jerk reaction to oppose whatever it is. So be careful with the mentality of resisting evacuation orders. Next one's just a quick feedback from a listener. Uh, Kathy out in California. The power in San Diego has been out for two hours now. Expected to be out through tomorrow. I drove home from work very slowly as the traffic signals are all down. When I pulled into the driveway, I could hear the generator running out back. Hubby was on the couch sipping a cold one and watching the Saints game. We both had big smiles on our face, and I went over and gave him a great big kiss. Thank you, Jack. Kathy. Kathy, thank you. Thank you for taking action, and uh, thank you for enjoying the fruits of your action. Another quick one here from John in North Carolina. John says, I wanted to give you some feedback on my experiences with this sponsor. I've been extremely impressed with their knowledge, helpfulness, and most of all, willingness to spend time needed to understand what we were looking for as customers. Very smart and very refreshing to deal with a company like Western Botanicals. I've been referred to Dr. Kyle Christensen, and he's always taken the time to talk to me or email me back with answers to questions that I have. I've also found the other staff to be helpful as well. I just got off the phone with Debbie, who was not only cordial, but a big help. They take time not only to answer your questions, but to educate as well. Thanks for everything you do, Jack, and helping me find a company like this one, John in North Carolina. John, that's that's what our sponsorships here are all about. Um, I'm not in the business of selling advertising. I'm in the business of serving my audience, and sponsors are, are supposed to be people that do just that. So it's always great to hear feedback like that. I get feedback like that on our sponsors all the time, and uh, occasionally I like to share some on the air. So, John, thanks for sharing. Anybody else that has some feedback on our sponsors, good or bad, let me know. Uh, when people occasionally make mistakes, I get personally involved and make sure they get fixed. Uh, some of you have seen that. Everybody's human. Sometimes balls get dropped. But I am always going to make sure with my audience that if anybody drops a ball, the ball gets picked up by the person who dropped it and it gets handled. And if it doesn't, then that sponsor doesn't need to be a sponsor of the Survival Podcast anymore. I think I'm the only person in broadcasting, conventional or alternative, that does things that way. I really believe that. And I wish more would. Uh, this one, you know, sometimes people say, I don't want people copying what I do. I wish everybody would copy that. Boy, we could clean up a lot of messes if, if everybody had the integrity to tell a sponsor to go to frick to hell. I wasn't going to use the other word. I meant it the way I said it. Go to frick to hell if you don't take care of my customers. Anyway, um, I got another one here for you. This is from Josh. Josh says, uh, Jack, just want to send you a quick note to say thank you. I've been listening to your podcast for about six months, and I've been learning a lot, although I'm about a month behind right now. Our home is on the riverbank of the Susquehanna River. Last night we had to evacuate due to rain from Tropical Storm Lee. We didn't have a bug out bag ready to go, but I'm making mental notes from the experience, something uh, a lot of folks around me aren't even able to do. We did What we did have was about three coolers of frozen and canned food we were able to take with us. I've been using the coffee can method to build up our stores of the last three months and and was actually shocked. Um, how much there was once it was all in place. I think you mean copy canning. Uh, that's what I call it, copy canning. I got that from uh, the late, great Ron Hood, uh, copy canning, where if you're going to go to the store and uh, you're going to buy a can of chili, well, you buy two instead of one. And the next time you use a can of chili and you put it on your list, you go to the store, you buy two instead of one until you fill the whole pantry up, and then you go back to buying one and, and rotating your food and buy two of something else. And that works really, really good. Um, let me keep going. We were able to take these stores with us when we evacuated to my brother's home. Combined with what he is storing, we would have probably been okay, but took the chance. We, we also hit up a local grocery while we could. Even at that, I am shocked more people weren't out. We just found the whole valley is cut off and probably will be for the better part of a week. Yet the shelves were full and the store only minimally busy. 
but it doesn't stay that way. And uh, remember, don't hoard in those situations, but get what you need. For sure, we're not. For sure, we're we're not where I'd like to be. But three months of storing went a long way to relieving some of the stress of the situation. Having thought about it in advance and knowing what I wish I had made getting out of the house uh, and visit to the grocery store much easier and much more helpful. As we deal with the cleanup, the insurance to recover from the situation, I will definitely be following the. I don't know what that word is, model, and using this emergency to learn what to do better in the future. Thank you for providing all the information and for providing it in such a thought-out, common-sense fashion. Josh. Uh, Josh, I'll tell you what, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear you got out. Uh, odds are you live somewhere real close to where I used to fish for smallmouth bass all the time. Um, that part of the Susquehanna, we used to drive out there. It was about an hour and a half drive from where I lived. And we used to fish for smallmouths and channel cats and stuff like that in the river. That was one of my favorite uh, things to do in the summer. And that river can come up fast. I've seen that river from rain upstate. And I don't mean torrential rain. I don't mean anything like you went through. But we used to wade out in that river. And there's, you know, when it's low in the summer, you can wade on certain places like Gertie's Rocks is a place I used to fish. Uh, you probably wouldn't have any idea where that was unless you really were from the area or and, and fished it. Uh, it's kind of a, a slang name, but um, you could you could wade almost across the river. Uh, and there were times when you, maybe you'd have to swim a little bit, hold your rod above you. But generally, you could get way way out on these different bars and rocks and rock formations. And you know, there were the days when we were out there, and the river would come up a foot, and it would come up a foot pretty quickly. And it was you know you had to be careful and think about what you were doing. And there were times you walked out and had to swim back. So I can only imagine what happened there. But good to hear that your preps paid off at least a little bit. Uh, next one comes from Pam. Where can I find bulk corn to store in buff buckets? The LDS canneries don't have corn, even though they recommend storing it. The big box stores only have popcorn. Feed stores sell deer corn, not human grain. How many kinds of corn are there? Where can we get heirloom corn to plant and breed true? Um, as far as where to get heirloom corn to plant and breed true, any of the... Uh, The, the good heirloom quality seed people, uh, Victory Seeds, who supports the Survival Podcast, Seed Savers Exchange, High Mowing, they're all supporters of the show one way or another. They're great. But, I mean, seeds have changed. All of them. I mean, it's, that's not hard at all. If you Google heirloom seeds, Baker Creek, whatever, you can find anything out there. As far as breed true, depends on what you mean by that. If you think you're going to plant corn today and get no cross-pollination, it's never been possible. It's not possible. It can't happen. Corn can pollinate for hundreds of miles. There's even been documented cases of pollen from China, from Chinese strains of corn, interpollinating with U.S. corn. What you do with corn is you plant only one variety at one time in a general area, and you stagger your planting. If you're going to do two varieties, maybe you plant one and in five weeks plant another, so they're going to pollen at different times. And you get a relatively true seed that'll plant and regrow for you and, and grow true to form. You might get a plant or two that are a little bit wacky, but that always happens. And you don't save seed from the wacky plants. You save seed from the good plants. So that's, that's that answer. Where can you find corn that's human grade to eat? Well, uh, look to another supporter of the show. Uh, not a sponsor, but a, uh, a supporter of the member support brigade, Honeyville Grains. And if you're an MSB, you get 10% off. Everything you buy at Honeyville, and if you're not, you still get a great deal from Honeyville. They have whole kernel white, yellow, and blue corn. Um, they are hybrids, so these are not seeds that you're going to plant. But for storing, they're just fine. Can I tell you they are or are not GMO? I have no idea. 
Um, I, right now, if you're buying commercial corn product, it's probably GMO, and you have to decide whether you're willing to use it or not. The only way you're going to get corn that's not GMO is to grow it yourself or buy it from a known source direct from the producer. And you're still going to have some cross-pollination. Let me explain again my concern with GMO corn and GMO other products. It's not so much the genetic modification itself. It's what the genetic modification does and, and what it allows to happen and how it cross-pollinates out to people that don't want it. Those are all problems. But my biggest problem is the biggest reason that we modify corn and soy and other things today is so they can be sprayed with herbicides. So it's the fact that we modify the corn and then we spray it with atrazine. And the atrazine is then taken up into the corn and we're consuming the atrazine. So that's my bigger problem. So if, if, if my corn gets a little bit of GMO cross-pollination in it, I have no health concerns from that whatsoever. It pisses me off. I don't like it. It makes my job of keeping my strains as pure as possible more difficult. But I'm not going to freak out about it. okay? And I'm not going to have every piece of corn I ever eat genetically tested before I consume it. Um, but if you just want good quality corn, you can get that at Honeyville Grain. Again, they have whole kernel white, yellow, and blue. They also have uh, corn flour and corn meal available in bulk. And to give you an idea on pricing, whole kernel white corn um, is $38.99 uh, for a 50-pound bag. And uh, so it's a pretty good price. And remember, they have flat rate shipping no matter how much you buy. And I think it's like uh, it's four forty nine. So you could buy two hundred pounds of corn, and they'll ship it to your house for four dollars and forty nine cents. And if you're MSB, uh, you'll get another ten percent off your order. So uh, there you go. That's a, a benefit I should remind people of more often. Honeyville grains. If you're looking for bulk wheat or corn or anything like that, Honeyville's the place to go. They have some great products. If you haven't been by Honeyville in a while, check them out. Even if you're not an MSB member, they're just a great supplier. Next one comes in from Claire. Claire says, Hi Jack, I'm prepping a prepping newbie who just recently started listening to your show, a lifelong big city dweller with growing concerns about times getting tough. I welcome the opportunity to transfer to a rural area. Uh, I welcomed, so they did it, ch to transfer to a rural area. We're mostly enjoying the change. Our most surprising discovery has been uh, that everyone here seems to own guns. My husband and I don't have a problem with that at all. We've even considered acquiring one ourselves. There really isn't a police force here. But again, we're pretty uncomfortable about weapons, so that decision is going to take time. More immediately at issue is that our young son is now beginning to visit friends' homes without me there to supervise. I'm worried that he'll come into contact with a lethal weapon. So my questions are, do you have any tips for talking to gun owners about gun storage and safety without coming across like a stereotypical West Coast liberal peacenik? Yeah, I do. I'll give them to you in a second. And more importantly, what are your thoughts on teaching children? My son is a mature five about guns so that they know what to do if they happen to come across one. Thanks for your podcast. You have an amazingly sharp, clear mind and have taught me so much about stewardship, gardening, conservation, the economy. Too much to list here. Okay, this is how you talk to your friends that your, your kids are going to their house and ask them about gun safety without being an ass and without inferring that they don't know what the hell they're doing. You tell them what you just told me, but you leave a lot of the details out. We've just moved here, and we've never owned guns, and we're considering getting a gun. We don't know what kind of gun to get, and we're concerned about safety for our children. How do you handle that? There you go. You'll have all of your concerns addressed. They'll tell you, we keep the guns locked up. This is how we talk to our children. This is what we teach our children about guns. And you'll know that their, their house is safe. If they say, oh, we don't worry about it. We just lay them around. Then you don't have a conversation with that person. Your kid doesn't go to their house anymore. 
If you walk into the house and they have like 10 loaded guns laying in the gun racks all over the place with little kids that are running around that can pick them up, they are an irresponsible gun owner. And it's very difficult for you to convert an irresponsible gun owner. So what you do is simply keep your kids out of that home. But what you'll find is 99% of these people, having lived there their entire lives, know exactly what the hell they're supposed to be doing. And if you ask them to help you, they will explain to you what you're doing, and that will alleviate your fears, and you just might find a mentor to get you over your own mental fear of firearms. I would also advise you, whether you think you're ready to buy a gun or not, go lease a gun and take a training program. It will fix a lot of your concerns. When you learn to use guns properly, a lot of your concerns will go away. So there's my advice on that one. Let's take another one. Okay, next one is a shit hit my fan story. And remember we talk about the shit hitting the fan all the time. We say that shit hits the fan for somebody every day. Uh, Richard here, uh, Mr. Mad Max 478 on YouTube. If you want to see his systems, uh, Richard says, my wife left me because I refused to sign for a $13,000 student loan. So she could go to chef school. Maybe you should send her the article we just talked about, about chef school. I told her, no way, if you want to go that bad, we can save the money, then you can go. She chose to leave me and try to force me to do it. Needless to say, I'm divorced now. Uh, that being said, I would like to personally thank you, Jack, for saving my sanity. I haven't had a garden in 20 years, and I had never heard the term aquaponics or permaculture until the beginning of this year. Last April, I set up my first one in the garage. Now I have three small systems running. One is in the garage, two in the house. I also have started a four-by-eight-foot raised bed garden last April. Uh, and over the winter, I plan to be adding a wicking bed, a few fruit, few fruit, cheese, a few fruit trees, and bushes in the yard and enlarge my garage aquaponics system. Caring for my plants, fish, and my two dogs have given my life meaning again since my wife left. It has greatly aided me in the ability to maintain a positive attitude even while facing a heart-wrenching events in my life. Once again, I would like to thank you for your work, Jack, Richard. Richard, let me say, I, my heart goes out to you, but I think you're probably better off. Um, you didn't tell her, no, I don't believe in your dream, and I don't think we need to do this. You said, you know what, if you want to go, let's save up money and go. And uh, I, I just about bet you that you could have got an arrangement for her to go to school to be a chef with maybe four installment payments or something like that, and at least save the first one and a half up before she'd started going. Um, and you could have worked it out. And if somebody's going to be that irrational, um, you, 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 you don't just throw away a marriage. I, I'm not saying it that way. But if they leave because of that, dude, you know, I'll tell you what you would have ended up with. A person with a $13,000 culinary certificate that was getting an $8.50 an hour job working at Long John Silver's is probably what you would have ended up with. On that note, if you want to be a chef, why don't you go to community colleges and take uh, continuing education courses for 50, 60 bucks uh, per course, maybe 70 bucks per course, and learn how to cook and go get a job and get some experience if that's what you want to be. I think that makes a lot more sense for most people. Uh, when you find a job where they encourage you to go to culinary school and give you tuition assistance, maybe then you've found a point in life where it makes sense to do that. Uh, but Richard, sorry for your, uh, sorry for your, uh, your loss, but I don't think long term it really is a loss. And I know that might sound harsh to some, uh, but it, it sounds like you were unequally yoked, I believe the term is. Uh, next one comes in from Hal. Hal says, hey, Jack, just in case somebody else hasn't submitted it yet, uh, Washington Post article entitled, and I've actually put this out on Facebook, I think two weeks ago, uh, many in U.S. slip from the middle class study finds. 
And this is an interesting article, but I want to preface it with saying something that I've said a lot of times in the past, and I've been telling you to prepare for, that everybody in America who doesn't prepare and doesn't solidify their life and doesn't come up with ways to do more with less can expect to slip one class. So if you're upper middle class, you're going to go to no lower middle class. If you're lower middle class, you're going to go to lower class. Well, here's the article. Many in U.S. slip from the middle class case study finds. Nearly one in three Americans who grew up middle class has slipped down the income ladder as an adult, according to a new report by the Pew Charitable Trust. Downward mobility is most common among middle class people who are divorced or separated from their spouses, did not attend college, scored poorly on standardized tests, or used hard drugs, the report says. In other words, people that are not as smart and use dope fall faster from the middle class. Duh. Uh, a middle class upbringing does not guarantee the same status over the course of a lifetime, the report says. And I'll say this, nor should it. The study focused on people who were middle class teenagers in 1979 and who were between 39 and 44 years old in 2004 and 2006 defines people as middle class as if they fall between the 30th and 70th percentile in income distribution, which for a family of four is between $32,900 and $64,000 a year in 2010. People were deemed downwardly mobile if they fell below the 30th percentile in income, if their income rank was 20 or more percentiles below their parents' rank, or if they earned 20% less than their parents. The findings do not cover difficult times the nation has endured since 2007. Um, so they're talking about this in a different way. Kids that were, you know, uh, middle class kids in 1979 are now not middle class adults. And they bring the college thing in. And you might go, Jack, look, see, there's proof. College is a good thing. Uh, in 1979, going to college uh, was a really great plan for, for most people. Uh, the, the economy was in a different stage. It was coming out of a recession, going into a rebuilding, and there were a lot of opportunities for college graduates. And if you went to college in 1979 and you graduated college, let's say around 85, 86, you came out into a really great time to have a college degree in the United States. And if you work from 1985 uh, in a job forward, you have lots of experience and lots of upward mobility now in your, in your chosen field. So I think that was the time when it was even a bigger issue. And there wasn't an internet, and there weren't all these other ways to learn alternatively, so I kind of poo-poo that for modern times. Again, what I said earlier at the beginning of the show is the problem with most people today is they're stuck in 1980s thinking. And that's what's going on here with this study. That's my problem with it, that it's not looking at the bigger picture. Uh, my slip from the middle class prediction is that people who are already there are slipping, and I don't think they're going to slip. I think they're slipping right now. I think we can show examples of probably millions of people in America that over the past three to four years have slipped down a class. But I don't think we've seen it happen wholesale. I don't see we've had the person making an income, making expenditures, and things remaining relatively constant slip. That's what I see coming. That's what I'm worried about. Anyway, it is an interesting article, and I will provide a link in today's show notes. Um, next one here, question for Jack. On today's show, you wanted more questions, so here's one. In all the shows I've listened to about purchasing property, I've yet to hear you say anything about securing mineral rights. I know how I would feel uh, once I set up a homestead and came home one day to find a gas well being drilled in my lower 40. 
Also, if you're looking for rural land, one of the questions you need to ask these days is, has this land ever been leased to a petroleum company? It may have been used in a practice called land farming. Land farming is the controlled and repeated application of waste from the drill site spread, then tilled into the soil. I wouldn't want my food to be grown on this land after this treatment. People who think they can run the earth should begin should begin with a small garden. Um, first of all, Jim, I'll tell you that I've done a lot of shows about finding rural land, and I've talked about mineral rights in most of them. So I don't know what episodes you're listening to. Maybe it was older episodes where I did that more frequently. But it's a simple question, and it's something that everybody should ask when they're buying property. Do mineral rights convey? If not, who currently holds them? And three, what minerals are present on the property? If someone has mineral rights to my property, but I live in a place where there's no oil, no gas, and no coal, uh, I'm not that concerned that somebody else holds the rights. Uh, parts of Pennsylvania that I grew up in, it's almost unheard of that the property owner has the mineral rights. But they don't have a, you know, a, a stripping mining shovel in their backyard because the reason the whole reason the land wasn't mined in the first place is because it wasn't there. Um, when you talk about land farming, where they take the, the, the waste from the drill site and till it into the soil, um, there's a big myth in the industry. It's actually good because there's lots of nitrogen in it. And it's, I wouldn't want that either. I, I wouldn't want that either. And it is a good question to ask. And here's the thing. I, I don't care if it's mineral rights. I don't care if it's land farming. You always need to know who owned the property before you and what was done with it. And you need to take that back at least 30 or 40 years minimum. And your title search should reveal that information for you. And before you go fully go to escrow and close, you should have access to that information and be able to back out if you decide to. Let me tell you something about buying property. I don't care how far in the process you are. I don't care if you're going to lose 500 bucks of earnest money or something like that. If something like that comes up and it can't be accounted for and answered in a way to your satisfaction, walk away from the deal. Walk away from the table. It's very important. It's very important that you don't become the owner of a problem. So with land, it's not just about mineral rights. It's about anything that was done with the property. Has there ever been any kind of chemicals or environmental stuff there? There's been lots of stories of people that have bought a piece of property uh, that, that somebody sat on for 20 years that had chemical problems in it, but that person was never forced to clean it up. When the new property owner comes in, the EPA jumps down your shit and makes you clean it up. Uh, and sometimes it can't even be cleaned up. They find you because you can't clean up property you just bought, even though the prior owner just dumped it on you. So that's always important to look at. Uh, here's a, a little warning from Dan. Dan says, homeless people seem to be getting more and more aggressive in Seattle. While eating lunch at a local sandwich shop today, I saw a guy walk in with his own cup and casually fill it up with soda without paying. He then started going around table to table asking for money. I was appalled that this guy had the nerve to interrupt people in their lunch hour and beg for change. Eventually, he made his way over to the small two-person table where I was sitting. Without saying a word, he pulled out the other chair and started to sit down. I immediately raised my voice to the point of almost making a scene and said, No, I don't have any change. Do you mind? I'm eating. The man seemed startled, mumbled, Oh, I guess you, I, you don't want me to sit here and left. On my way back to work, I noticed the same guy from earlier following me, even though I'm 6'3 and 210, with extensive martial arts training. I was a little concerned that he and his buddies might try to jump me in an alley behind my building. As well you should be. Because when people jump you, sometimes it's a screwdriver in your back before you know what happened. So just a little aside there. Unfortunately, I work in a government building. I can't carry on the job. I will, however, be more situationally aware while coming and going from work. This is just a reminder to take notice of those around you. A disgruntled homeless person can quickly become a potential threat. 
I, is, if anyone is wondering about the employees of the sandwich shop, they appeared too busy to notice or didn't want to get involved. And there's a lot of that going around now, too. Um, they also may figure it's, it's, it's 13 cents worth of soda in his own cup. When you buy a soda at the store, it costs more for the cup you put it in than the soda that comes out of the fountain. So they just might have thought it wasn't worth making a scene over. If it was my business, that son of a bitch would have been hauled away for shoplifting, and he would never be bothering my patrons again. And they should have done something not so much about him taking the soda, but harassing their customers. But, you know, obviously it didn't happen. The big reason I want to bring this up is situational awareness is so important. And I'm glad Dan had it. And I don't care how big and tough you are, and I'm glad Dan's in touch with his own mortality. Uh, just because you think you're a martial arts badass and 210 and 6'3", a lot of people like that feel like they don't have to worry about anything. Um, again, a Phillips screwdriver in your kidney changes everything in a millisecond. And it can happen no matter how badass you think you are. Um, so I'm glad you had a situational awareness. I do say this, though. If you're living in an area with stuff like this going on, and you walk from work to places, you need to take different routes on different days, be constantly aware, and come up with some level of self-defense beyond just your martial arts training. I think that you, you can't have a gun at work? Fine. I don't like it. I think it's bullshit. I think someday somebody's going to walk in there and probably open up, and none of the employees that are right to carry people are going to be able to defend anybody else, just like that nonsensical crap that happened at the school board uh, down in Florida where the only one that stood up and did anything was an old lady with a purse. Um, but if, if that's the case and you don't want to lose your job over it, and I don't blame you. You don't want to go to jail over it, and I don't blame you. Then get yourself a good can of pepper spray. And if you have to stop and drop it off in your car on your way back into the office, carry it when you walk the streets. And uh, a coubaton is another great thing. Maybe a chain on your keys. Uh, and, I mean, uh, you know, a, a can of pepper spray on one hand and a chain with your keys in the other that you can flail is going gonna, is gonna to fight off most attacks. And, uh, you know, martial arts training, I'm very skeptical with people with that stuff. I really am. Um, I have seen so many people that if you put them in a ring to spar, they're great. But when you look at a street fight, it never looks like a sparring. It never even looks like a cage match with UFC. And anybody becomes inadequate when there's enough other people with weaponry of any kind, including a board with a nail in it, um, very, very quickly. So it's not that the training is not valuable. It's that it definitely has its limitations, and you need to accept the limitations and be prepared. That sounds like you are, Dan. Thanks for the warning for everybody else. Um, next one comes in from Trudy. Trudy says, you need to know the effect your show had on a lot of people here in New York affected by Irene. When you do a show, the information you present has the effect of casting a stone off a pool of water, it has rip, it has a rippled effect. I started listening to the show at number 70, so I've been prepping for a while. By the way, if you listen at number 70, go listen to 69. 69 is one of the best shows I've ever did, getting your, your spouse on board. Anyone who hasn't listened to that episode yet, you really need to. It'll help you talk to your spouse, and it'll help you talk to other people about prepping in a very, very meaningful way. Anyway, let me go back to it. So I've been prepping for a while. When Irene hit, we didn't need anything. So we were able to stay home and safe. We lost our lights for almost a week, but we had a generator, gas propane stove with propane, food, water, etc. We could have gone a month before we had to get more water. This is because of what I learned from your show, Ripple Effect. Because I was prepared, I was able to give food to a friend who lost everything in her freezer, five-gallon buckets of pasta, beans, rice, flour, and sugar, Ripple Effect. Another friend started prepping. I introduced her to your show, Ripple Effect, but her basement flooded. Her buckets of food were fine and canned stuff, What, turn, what turned out neat is she took her non-food preps and had them in a Rubbermaid containers. They weren't waterproof. 
They aren't waterproof. But she took glue and went around the edge and covered the glue with clear plastic painter's cloths, more glue, and put the lids on everything. Everything stayed dry. What a good idea. That's a great idea. So Rubbermaid containers, she said they're not waterproof. And I'm like, what do you mean? They're waterproof but up to the lid. So here again is what she did. She took glue, went around the edge, and covered the glue with clear plastic painter's cloth, more glue, and put the lids on. Everything stayed dry. What a great idea. That is a great idea for those Rubbermaid tubs. My daughter's family were, were prepared because I have been nudging them ripple effects. So they had the time to go out, uh, they had the time to go out on the roads right after the storm and clear trees off the roads in people's driveway. Pine and oak helping countless people get out of their homes when they needed to ripple effect. And they were able to take 10 cords of hardwood home for winter heating. So they went out and, and cut everybody's trees out of their yard but took the wood in, in its payment and now they can heat their home off of that. Isn't that awesome guys? Uh, back to the letter. I stopped by a little store to get some soda on the way home to my daughter's the day after Irene. The store had no power and only took cash. Not a plant problem for me. I had the cash. The guy in front of me was trying to get the clerk to take a check for some cigarettes. I paid for I, I paid for them for him, ripple effect. I, I would have done, I think I would have bought the guy anything except cigarettes, but that's just me. Uh, as you see, just in this small area, you have affected the lives of many people. Keep throwing those stones on the pond. The ripple effect is so much more than you will ever know. Some helpful things from the time we were without lights. Battery, uh, book lights. They were great for reading in bed. Use little battery lights, something others may want to add to their preps. Chem lights, chem lights, and more chem lights. They were great for the hall at my house, and the kids love them. Even the 18-month-old baby, and they're safe, no candle fire risk. Gallon bottles of water in the freezer. We didn't have to crank the generator on for three days. Oh, keep an extension cord on the generator. Water beds get cold without the electric, but a space blanket on the mattress pad then covered that with a tiny sheet worked just fine. Finally, deer meat prices Piece, deer meat pieces work great with Hamburger Helper. I know, uh, but we love it. Thanks again, Jack Trudy. So I guess she thinks I'm going to say that the Hamburger Helper is bad for you. Hey, at least you're making it with deer meat, so it can't be that bad, I guess. And uh, I just say, like, look, let's say you like uh, Hamburger Helper, uh, and you like the cheeseburger macaroni, and maybe you like to do Chili Mac uh, Hamburger Helper, which is basically the same thing with some chili flavorings, uh, you know, and, and then you add meat to it. Okay, go to go to Honeyville Grains that I talked about earlier. Get a big can of cheese powder and get yourself good quality pasta, and get yourself some chili flavorings. And you can make any of that stuff with deer meat or ground beef or anything else for a fraction of the cost, and it's much better for you. I'm not saying. Cheese powder from honey, uh, Honeyville Grains is like the holy grail of food, and you can eat as much as you want without getting fat, but it is better for you than Hamburger Helper. Okay, just a thought on that. Uh, last one today from Sparky in Maine. Hey, Jack, what do you think about using compost made from animal renderings for vegetable beds? When I built new raised beds this year, I ordered a load of compost and loam. After it was delivered, I learned the compost was composed of animal rendering. The compost facility works closely with local extension office on this product. And both assured me it was perfectly safe for growing vegetables. I've only found one or two negative opinions about it, with many other positive reports for various sources, extension offices, etc. That says it doesn't seem to be a very widely used product. I am trying to decide if I want to continue using it in future beds. Any thoughts? Thanks, Sparky and May. Um, first of all, I have no problem with it at all. If you are going to keep bringing more compost in, though, I would bring compost in from multiple sources. I think it makes sense to get as much variety into your garden beds as possible. That's going to give you the biggest profile of, uh, of minerals and nutrient and things like that. So I try not to single source compost. Now I'm doing that exact opposite right now. I'm getting all of my compost from the compost facility at Hot Springs, uh, compost facility. Why? Because it's free and I can just shovel it up. But 
Long term, I'll be doing a lot of my own composting, bringing in different organic matter, making my own. And then the other thing about the facility there is I know that the compost itself is made from a huge variety of materials because I watched them come in. Uh, but animal renderings, I mean, you know, a lot like a classic fertilizer, for instance, this is not really compost, but a classic fertilizer is blood and bone. It's extremely high in nitrogen. And you can get blood, blood meal, you can get bone meal, or you can get a mixture of the both, or you can make your own. And people use it all the time. The only people that I see have really big objections to this are usually vegetarians, and they're pissed off that they're doing all of this work to be vegetarian, and then the compost that they're using is animal-based. And some poor animal died so that their compost could exist. Um, I think that's just nonsense. I, I do. And I don't mean to offend anybody out there that's a vegan or a vegetarian. I don't. Um, but the compost is there. It exists. It's a product. Uh, it's not. You're not going to get meat into your pepper from it, for God's sakes. And if you don't use it, somebody else will. I also... It shocks me when I, you know, because there's, there's two kinds of people like that. There's people that actually walk the walk and talk the talk uh, in the vegan industry, you know, where they're like, you know, I don't want to use any animal products. No, I wouldn't use blood or bone in my garden or whatever. And that's fine. And then you get in their car and they have leather seats. And then you just all your credibility is gone. Now, if they go that far and they also say, I would never buy anything with leather. I wouldn't buy a leather belt. I, would, I think you're, I, I, I don't get it, but I respect it. Um, but that's usually the big objection. I personally have no problems with it. And, uh, but I do say try to put some diversity into, and not just compost, fertilizer, uh, mineral sands, soil amendments, fertilizers, topsoil, loam, uh, mineral sands like green sand or lava sand, any of that stuff. Try to, try to get as much diversity as you can into your beds. Uh, do as much composting on your own as you can because you're going to get a better broad spectrum result. Another thing, if you're using a lot of compost and loam, uh, you're going to generally be deficient in minerals. You're going to be very, very well off from a standpoint of nutrient, but a lot of things like calcium and other minerals can be deficient. There's a lot of things you can do for that. One is planting things like comfrey, which will mine from your subsoil and bring minerals up, but mineral amendments are a great idea. Green sand... Uh, and lava sand. Lava sand is more to help retain moisture, but it does add some minerals as well. Crushed oyster shell for calcium, crushed eggshell, those things added into what you're doing will give you a more rounded approach. What we want to do in our gardens is give them every opportunity they can to have optimal growing conditions. And the healthier the plants are, the more resistant to disease and pests they are. It's really interesting sometimes as I wrap up today that like this summer growing my gardens, I would go to my garden and if it hadn't been watered, that bad garden, it would dry out really quick. When the plants got weak and they started to wilt, there'd be grasshoppers on them eating them. And as soon as I'd water the plants and they'd fill up the grasshoppers and go somewhere else, I, I thought that was crazy. But it's, it's what happened. And the more the plants were stressed, the more they were attacked by pests. And the better the plants were cared for, the less they were attacked by pests. So, uh, again, the more we can give the full, full nutritional opportunity for the plants, the more they're going to stand up to everything, and the more nutritious they're going to be when we eat them. But, again, I would not really worry about using animal rendering-based compost. I just probably wouldn't use it as a sole source, so I would probably bring in some other items on the next go-round. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. 
It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.